This Advent season, we've been in a thematic series on Sunday mornings called The Need for Christmas. And we've explored this theme, what, what Christmas brings and why we need it. It brings consolation as Simeon declares. It's needed because it's God's gift to us. So the angels said, we just sang. It brings rest if we believe. So Hebrews reminded us. And it brings us a better king than the world offers as we looked last Sunday and we compared Jesus with the kings His incarnation saw. Caesar, Augustus, Quirinius in, in his census, and Herod. And this evening I want to look briefly at one of the many draft sermons I wrote these last few weeks, feeling that this topic would find a more sensible delivery this evening as we consider the Last Supper. It's taken from John's discourse at the beginning of his gospel during the Incarnation. I invite you to stand, if you're able to stand, in honor of hearing these familiar words in John 1, 12 through 14. Jesus, uh, John writes, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, I want to do more than just recite what I feel You've laid on my heart. Rather, I want to be empty of myself and full of Your Spirit saying what it is that you desire. Father, help us to adore you in the way we should, for I fear we fail doing that. Please be exalted and lifted up. Help us to understand in a perhaps a better way than we used to understand what it means to receive you and believe in you. Lord Jesus, have your way in our hearts and our minds. Say what it is you desire. We pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. This table, in fact Christmas itself, is of no value to you in the most weightiest or significant or important of senses unless you do what John lays out here. What John records here, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name. Receive and believe. Ties perfectly into what we already looked at a few weeks ago. Again, what the angels say that first Christmas twilight, for unto you, not for His own purposes, not for even unto God, but unto you, 
is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He was born unto you, the shepherds, to his own, John says, and to all the world. John would say over and over in his gospel accounts, God so loved the world. And if he's born for the shepherds and for his own and for us, we then must receive him. Jesus uses similar language when he says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. My point is is that when a, when a man sits down with you at the table, breaks some bread, and says, here, eat it, it's my body. And takes some wine and pours a glass and slides it your way and say, this is my blood, have a sip. It's safe to say he, he doesn't just want to get to know you. He doesn't want to write down a few things, slide a paper your way and say, these are all facts about me, do you believe it? It goes deeper than that. John never records the Last Supper as Matthew, Mark, and Luke does, but he does record a similar conversation or a dialogue where Jesus calls himself the bread of heaven. And in that passage, we we read about a split or a division on some receiving him and some not. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. When many of his disciples heard it, and as for those who eventually walk away, we know these disciples were not numbered with the twelve. Nevertheless, some disciples They said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Some translations say, who can accept it? My point is, is receiving and believing Jesus is more than intellectual agreement with a few facts about him. Receiving Jesus is welcoming, submitting, and yielding to him. We think about the nativity story, and from the get-go, Mary shows us how to receive him. An angel shows up. He's saying, basically, I'm going to change your life drastically. Starting with the idea that most are going to believe that you're pregnant out of wedlock. And I know you're betrothed to a man and how it will look to him as well. But we read Mary says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Notice it's not, I'm the servant of the Lord, but can I make a few alterations? (laughs) Some provisions, some changes to what the Lord has put? No, she just receives Christ. Joseph likewise shows us the same kind of reception of Christ or obedience from the get-go. Take her as your wife, baby and all, over and over. Rise and leave. And he does. Receives God's word, suffers what is needed for the sake of obedience. And they receive because they believe. Remember, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. Belief is a key theme of John. 
It's used 58 or so times. About his whole book, John even says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Believing receives life and receives Him. I believe belief both has a mystery and a simplicity to it. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. It's a personal test. Is He faithful? Will He save me? Is He who He says He is? Do I know what He means when He says, eat My body and drink My blood and receive Me? And believing, we find as far as John's writings are concerned, are the great dividing line in life. It seems to be the thing of most paramount concern. Jesus says, speaking of the Holy Spirit in John 16, it says, and when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Or Jesus says it this way after that memorable John 3.16. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. John 3.18. Believe and receive. This is my body. This is my blood. And believe, I am the Son of God. I am your righteousness. I am your salvation. This is who baby Jesus in the manger is. And this is who He grows up to be. Why are we to believe and receive? Those receiving Him and believing in Him, He gave the right, some say the power, to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will, nor of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Receiving Him leads to receiving adoption, part of the family of God. And notice receiving and believing. I don't think this is the best word, but it's the only word I came up with. But these are mostly passive things, right? Like I don't open up my gifts on Christmas morning after receiving them and say, man, that was hard work. Glad I received that. I don't have beliefs that I worked hard at having. Kevin, do you believe Joe Biden is president? Kevin, do you believe the Pope is Catholic? Kevin, do you believe polar bears exist? Well, I put in the hard time, the hard work, the exercise. I can safely say I believe these things. No, either you believe them or you don't. Now, granted, there is a measure of facts before us required. I get that. But the act of belief, at least according to Paul, is no amount of work. Paul writes, for what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him, that's belief, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Hear that? Faith receives righteousness as a gift. Because faith, or belief, that acquires 
righteousness. No work was involved. The good news of adoption is that I can be a downright nasty sinner, and I am, but if I put my faith or my belief not in my own works, but in His, Jesus' righteousness, then that belief credits me as righteous. He then gives us the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We're not born of blood, not our blood at least. We're not the product of works or of previous generations. My, my salvation in Him is not contingent on my bloodline or my ethnicity. And it was not that man desired or willed this adoption. We wouldn't. We're too sinful. It's God's desire, God's want, and it is belief, that non-value of work that Paul talks about that receives Him. It is faith that receives Him and faith that moves from one, moves one from wayward, lost, and non-believer to the child of God. As one of my study Bibles states, Christ authorizes us to become God's children by grace through faith in Him. So, receiving and believing. When He says things like, this is my body, this is my blood, believing. He is the Son of God. He is who He says, says He is. I will turn to Him from where I am. It's no work, but by grace He saves me. Adoption. God becomes my Father and I move into the position of adoption by virtue of who He is and what He does. Who are we receiving? Who are we believing in? And how does He accomplish that? And the Word became flesh. Have you heard that statement enough? Can you ever hear that statement? And I don't know about you. I don't know if I can come to a place where I can say truly, dismissively, entirely, yeah, the Word became flesh. I get it. In context, John opens the book echoing Genesis, only he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So we hear the Word was God, and we hear the Word became flesh. God became flesh. I have homework for you this evening. When you leave, take in the sights, the skies, the stars if you can see them. The surrounding hills, if you can see them. The beautiful sunrise tomorrow, if it's a beautiful one. The wildlife that you see, the scenery, all of it. Take it all in and then say or receive or believe and know the one who made all of this became flesh. That's what we profess. It's what we believe. What God writes in His Word. The one who made it all became flesh. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. That's Luke's version of the Word became flesh. John then writes that after God became flesh and dwelt among us, 
We have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's a lot said there, a lot said in all that we've been reading, but for the sake of brevity, I, I now just want us to consider glory. Because though glory can be defined, we must also weigh, excuse the pun, glory does mean weight or weighty, but let us weigh John's usage of the word. He brings it up later out of the mouth of Jesus. And it is extremely relevant to our purposes this evening. This word glory shows up, or we might say it climaxes, well, in the climactic chapters of John, when, when Jesus rides in on a donkey, John records a few conversations he has then, and one of the things he states is, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John twelve twenty three. A few chapters later, after where the Last Supper takes place, Jesus prays to God in John 17, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that you may know that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have gave me to do. And now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The hour has come for he to be glorified, or or glorify your son, Jesus prays. And, And the whole book is filled with foreshadowing remarks. We see things like the hour was not yet, or his time was not yet, but now it is. Now his time of glory is, and it culminates on the cross when he says what you've heard it before, but note the language, the language of the Last Supper, we read, when Jesus had received the wine, sour wine, some say, Jesus said back at the Last Supper, for I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes, and it comes with his death. He received wine, and then he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up. That's another term of offering or a gifting. He's for us. He gave up his spirit. What for? Why? Out of the mouth of non-believers, hostile non-believers, John gave us the why. Caiaphas. He worried that if Jesus kept going, doing what he's doing, that he would invite the Romans to come and attack them And he prophesied as to the why of Jesus' glory. Caiaphas says, Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then John records Caiaphas saying, and then remarks, He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Jesus dies for His people, for the people He came to, and they received Him. This is my body. This is my blood. Those people. So tonight I want us to direct our attention to that passage in Luke, that one I alluded to, where where Luke seems to show us what the angels said. Unto you is born this day 
is also what Jesus said, this is my body which is given for you. This is why He is given to us, for us. His body, His blood. Behind us will be crackers to remind us of His broken body and grape juice to remind us of His shed blood. And what I would like to invite us to do is, first of all, Paul would tell us in 1 Corinthians that it's worth examining ourselves in these moments. we I don't think we should look to the Lord's Supper as a, as a place where we can score brownie points with God. He doesn't look at it as a deposit into salvation. He's already died for us once and for all, the author of Hebrews says. Rather, what did Jesus say? Do this in remembrance of me. We remember his broken body, his shed blood. He says in John, again, in John 6.53, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of God and the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And this remembrance is a partaking or a communing of life in him and with him. And so you're invited if you truly believe and you truly receive him. If you feel your need for him this Christmas, that's our theme this year. It's open to all Jesus-believing Blood-bought Christians, if you receive and believe Him, this is for you. But if you view this as something as a means to curry favor with God, or you're viewing this wrong. And if you intend to take this and ignore repentance, ignore His Lordship, then I would caution against it. But if you're heartfelt and sincere in seeking Him out, then by all means, come. And what we're going to do is, we're going to all take this together. So those who desire to take these, I'm going to invite you to to come forward to take a cracker, take some juice, but then return to your spots. Don't eat or drink just yet. And let's wait for everyone who desires to come and take this to do so. And then when I sense it's time, I plan to read out of the book of Luke for us, that last supper. And then let us take communion together as we read through that and hear the Lord's commands. So I'll go ahead and get the elements ready. And whenever you want to come up, I invite you to do so. Luke 22, beginning with verse 14, we read, And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's drink together. Let's pray. Father, with these elements, we proclaim your birth or your death and your resurrection for us. Thank you for having your body broken for us and your blood poured out for us. It is in you and in that alone that we find our salvation, our hope. And we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit to move us past sin and into a life of holiness if we obey you. 
So Lord Jesus, we ask that as we have taken this tonight, that we would remember your death and it would cause us to be truly remorseful of our sins and also to truly strive by the power of your Holy Spirit and through your grace to be like you as you were on earth. So Father, we thank you again for this. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.